Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, author Annie Zaleski joins us to talk about her new book, Duran Duran's Rio. Welcome back to the Rhino Podcast, friends. John Hughes is here with us as usual. John, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing just great. Thanks very much. We've got a wonderful episode for you folks today that we're really excited about. And John will join me in the interview and discussion with Annie Zaleski talking about her new book, Duran Duran's Rio, part of the 33 and a Third series from Bloomberg Books. You told me you were talking about Duran Duran this week, and I was like, you're not going to keep me off the show this week. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got that for you, but we also have a very cool album announcement to share with you. Yeah, it's Merci Miles, live at Vienne. Previously unreleased recording featuring one of the jazz legend's final live performances. It's going to be released during our upcoming Black Music Month. Miles Davis performed with the Miles Davis Group on July 1st, 1991 at the Jazz Avienne Festival in France. Sadly, it was one of his last concerts before passing away September 28th of that same year. It includes two songs, Penetration and Jailbait, which if you haven't guessed by those titles, were written by Prince. (laughs) Nice. The two CD, two LP, and digital versions are available June 25th from Rhino. And speaking of Black Music Month, we're going to celebrate all month long with definitive albums from Charles Mingus, Curtis Mayfield, Milt Jackson, Ray Charles, Zapp and Roger, The Drifters, The Time, along with more previously unreleased music from Miles Davis and Roberta Flack. You can find out all the details about Black Music Month at Rhino.com. Yes, you can. Meanwhile, Grateful Dead, Skull and Roses is getting expanded for its 50th anniversary. This is going to be available as a two CD set and digitally on June 25th. It includes the album's original 11 tracks, which have been remastered from the analog master tapes by Grammy Award winning engineer David Glasser. It also includes a bonus disc with 10 previously unreleased live tracks that were recorded on July 2nd, 1971 at the Fillmore West, which was the band's final performance at that historic San Francisco venue. If vinyl is your thing, a remastered version of that original double LP will also be available the same day. And you can always check stuff out at dead.net. 
Excellent. Thanks, John. Looking forward to both of those. And folks, if you want to learn more about The Grateful Dead Skull and Roses, we are covering that album in the current season of the good old Grateful Dead cast, which you can check out at dead.net slash deadcast. Well, on this episode of the Rhino Podcast, John and I welcome author Annie Zaleski. Her work has appeared in dozens of publications, including NPR Music, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, Salon, Billboard, The AV Club, Vulture, Alternative Press, Stereo Gum, The Village Voice, Los Angeles Times, and The Cleveland Plain Dealer. Annie has just released a fascinating new book as part of the 33 and a third series entitled Duran Duran's Rio, which deep dives into the story of the band's iconic second record. Zaleski, thank you so much for joining the Rhino podcast for this episode. Thank you for having me as a longtime Rhino fan. This is very exciting. And of course, we're joined by John Hughes. John, nice to have you here again in a main episode. I had to. It's Duran Duran. I can't sit this one out. Come on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Annie has written a fabulous new book called Rio about, obviously, Duran Duran. It's part of the 33 and a third series from Bloomsbury Books. And congratulations, Annie. The book is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. I've worked, I've worked, I, I, I think I've probably worked harder on this than anything I've ever done in my career. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. How long did it take you to get the book? Together? Well, that's a very good question. So I started pitching this book in 2007 to Bloomsbury. So wow. basically how it works is 33 and a third has this whole like rolling call for proposals. So I have been trying to convince them to let me to write this book for that long. But I officially found out that I got the, I was able to get the book in like early 2019. And so then, you know, it was kind of, all right, let's start digging. Let's, you know, let's reach out to the band. Let's, you know, let's start doing our research. So, I mean, technically it was, it was well over a year and a half. Wow. It's easy to store too. Exactly. It's for your pocket. It's perfect beach reading. You just stick in your beach bag. Well, it was great. I was reading some of the quotes about the series at the beginning of the book, and Rolling Stone said, I thought this buttoned it up nicely. They say it's ideal for the rock geek who thinks liner notes aren't enough. I like that. That totally sums it up. You know, as as someone who reads liner notes constantly, I, I feel very similarly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. So it does dive into some juicy details in the book and it covers just about everything about the album that you could think of. So, but why write about Rio and why write about Duran Duran? Oh my gosh. So I, how long do we have here? Cause I could, I, could go for <laughs> I mean, I've been a Duran Duran fan for decades and, you know, first and foremost to me, they're just such a fantastic band just in terms of songwriting, you know, they, they, they assimilate all of their influences in a very unique, inventive way. They write great songs. I mean, when you think about the 80s, the 80s and Duran Duran are pretty much synonymous. But then they, you know, they started, they've kept writing. You know, you think about the 90s, ordinary world, early 90s, like, oh my God. But Rio to me stands out. I mean, just because when you think of new wave albums and you think of like, you know, kind of the bands that came of age in the early 80s, there are a lot of really great singles bands. You know, they wrote some like amazing songs. They were kind of quirky, huge hits. You listen to their records and they 
it didn't quite sustain over the course of, you know, 10 or 12 songs. But Rio is a perfect album. Rio is one of those records. Every song could have been a single. Every song is its own unique little universe. And every song is just does something very interesting. And so it's just a really complete statement. Wow, that's great. They were labeled as New Romantics originally, <laughs> right? So yes. define that for us. What is a New Romantic band? The New Romantics, and so this this kind of grew out of a scene in London. And so it was kind of, it originated basically in England. And it was bands who dressed up in these amazing outfits. Like for, uh, you think of like Adamant and Spandau Ballet and Visage and Classics Nouveau. Those were kind of like the main acts associated with the New Romantics. And there was a subset, you know, who would wear these like kind of like pirate wear. Like if you think of Adamant and early in their career, Duran Duran kind of dabbled in that too. And it was like, it was, it was, you know, when they say romantic, that's what it is. It's like these frilly blouses and shirts and these really kind of gauzy fashion. It was very, you know, it was very different from the 70s. It might have been a little bit kind of hard scrabble, tight pants for the punks or, you know, the really, you know, dramatic for Roxy music in these elaborate suits. Yeah. But it was basically, you know, it was the Blitz Club in, in London. That was kind of where some of the new romantics started. And then, but our Duran Duran was from Birmingham and they had the Rum Runner. And so they were a little bit outside kind of the popular mainstream, but so, but they kind of soaked that up too. I, you know, I feel like with in America, new romantics, people had no idea what to do with them. They were like, you know, basically like aliens from a foreign planet because they were so different and looked so different and sounded so different sonically from everything going on at that point. Oh, yeah. They were completely rejected. I mean, I remember I, I was there, kid. I remember <laughs> um, Rolling Stone giving Journeys into Glory by Spano Ballet a half-star review. Ooh! I remember Visage, Fade to Grey, getting a one-star review. And I remember Duran Duran, full circle, Annie, you'll appreciate this, from Cleveland, Ohio. The pirate look. I saw Duran Duran the first time at the Pirate's Cove in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> You saw that 1981 show? Oh my Most God. certainly did. I'm so jealous. I was a little kid. <laughs> I, I, am, I am like, you can't see me right now, but I am like turning, I'm like shaking my fist. Years later, when they signed to Warner's, they had a little uh, get together in the lobby at the headquarters. And I was talking to Nick Rhodes, the keyboardist, which was a thrill, number one. And I said, hey, I saw you guys in 1981 at the Pirates Cove. And he said, is that the weird place with like the half ship inside? Uh, and I was like, yes, it absolutely is. And as far as I know, it's still there. I don't know if it is or not. Yeah, no, that's, and, you know, and figuring Duran Duran was so popular in Cleveland because, yeah. you know, rock, they, you know, love Roxy Music and Bowie and Cleveland adored Roxy Music and Bowie. And so, yeah, they were, I mean, Jane Scott, the great rock critic, wrote this huge piece on him I found when researching that was, you know, very, very meticulously researched, talked to the band. Yeah, like, that's exactly what it was. It makes sense. I mean, you listen to a song by Roxy Music, like Same Old Scene, it sounds like it could be on Rio. The whole thing from that little synthesized rhythm at the beginning to the bass line. Oh, we haven't, we haven't gotten into John Taylor's bass playing yet. Oh Sorry. my gosh, we will. Trust me, <laughs> we will. But Annie, you mentioned Birmingham and the Rum Runner. Tell people what the Rum Runner is or was and why that's significant. So the Rum Runner was, uh, I mean, it was it was basically the like dance club place to be. They had these very notorious Bowie nights. They had like, you know, if you wanted to go listen to cool music, I mean, basically Duran Duran's co-managers at the time owned the place. And I think as the story goes, they went to New York City and, and visited Studio 54 and they kind of brought that vibe 
back to the Rum Runner. But the Rum Runner also became basically like early Duran Durans. They're kind of their headquarters. You know, they all work there. They all practice there. And so it was kind of the hub where Duran Duran grew out of, basically. I mean, they did early shows there. So it was very much like kind of their, their home away from home. Very cool. So it gave them a place to kind of workshop live and get their act together. And it was uh, kind of a de facto office, it sounds like, if management was there also. Yeah, absolutely. It was like it was like the DDHQ, the hub. <laughs> DDHQ, I love that. I also love that you got this record yourself from your library, your local library. That took me right back because I used to also. That's how I got some records. I mean, you're a kid. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have a big allowance. And so, like, you know, the things, you know, you you could buy a certain amount of things, but then everything else, you kind of had to figure out how to get it. So, yeah, I would go to my local library and take out all of these amazing tapes and CDs. And once I got a CD player, I dubbed them. And so I, I dubbed a, a CD of Rio onto a tape. But I mean, oh, my God. I mean, but I was listening to like Kraftwerk and I was listening to like Ultravox and the Velvet Underground and U2. Like it was, you know, it was such a mind expanding place. And so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I've always been a library fan. I spent many, many hours there as a kid, books and music. And but yeah, Duran Duran, I have I still have the tape. I literally I oh, that's great old tapes and found it. And so I will be sharing that. What was it about Rio that made you pick it out when you were at the library? That's a good question. I think probably because I was such a Duran Duran fan already. Um, already, you know, so I think the wedding album and it's funny, I, I was speaking with my childhood best friend this week and she reminded me that apparently when Ordinary World was on MTV, I used to call her and be like, turn on MTV, Ordinary Worlds on MTV. So I like I was like all in as soon as I kind of you know heard the band. And so, I, I mean, I think part of it was probably because that was the record they had there. They probably had Rio and some other things. But I had started going backwards. You know, I think, as you know, as you would know, alternative rock radio was so great. Then they would oh, yeah. play 80s music. And so they would have all the kind of the new sounds from the 90s and all this like cool retro stuff. And of course, Duran Duran was one of them that was played all the time. So, you know, it was kind of like I came to like both eras at the band almost at the same time. Yeah. I think WENZ was one of, the, one of the only stations that picked up uh, in Cleveland, which was the big alternative station yes. in the early 90s. They were the ones that picked up on too much information and tried to make that happen. I love that <laughs> song. That's, I, that, I remember seeing the video. And yes, I remember that song. Like that was, you know, I, I, I am such a big proponent of that song. Destroyed by ABC, I hate to buy the If they tried, they tried it, you know. Rich, when did you first hear Rio? I, I first heard Rio. I grew up in Los Angeles and K-Rock was on the Duran Duran train early on. They were one of the early ones. Those songs just jumped out of the radio. They had a sound to them like no other band that they were playing at the time. Absolutely. And you're right. And, 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 you know, you speak at my, I talked to um, Dusty Street, who was a very, it was a K-Rock DJ yes. who played them on the import show, you know, and she said, you know, I had, you know, I think she liked Careless Memories, which was the single that I love that unfortunately didn't, didn't take off, but she was just, you know, she gravitated toward that. So easy to with a thought, with a
you're right. When you listen to air checks, even now, when people have kind of the vintage stuff, I mean, Planet Earth sounds like nothing else out there and or and or girls on film. You know, it's just this like this music. It's like Technicolor 3D music that just jumps out at you. It's you know, that's that was one of the fun things when researching and kind of going back and looking at that. And you're like, no, that's just not, you know, me being a fan. Like that's objectively this music just sounded so different than everything else going on. I mean, think about it contextually. Planet Earth is out as a single the same time as Charlie Dore, pilot of the airwaves, and Christopher Cross at Arthur's theme. And <laughs> it sounded like it was from Mars. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard top 40, uh, one of the, the top 40 countdowns from early 1982 the other week. And it was just like, I was like falling asleep. It was just like, it was so bland and it was so like, it sounded like the seventies. I mean, I think everyone kind of jokes, you know, the eighties don't start until a couple years after actual 1980, but I think there's really some truth to that. But hungry like the wolf from Rio, uh, it really did not take off out of the box in the U.S., did it, Anne? No, it didn't. And, you know, you had some of those early supporter stations who played the single and, you know, gave it some spins. K-Rock did. Um, but it didn't. It took months, you know, and I think that was one of the most interesting things. That's always kind of the the legend, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf, it, it took months and months to pick up. But when you actually kind of dig into and like kind of do a timeline and look at it, you know, the record came out in May of 82, and that's when kind of the single basically came out. The single didn't hit at rock radio until January of 83, and then top 40 in March. So we're talking almost a year up until like it actually finally reached a wider consciousness. In touch with the playing it beforehand was MTV. MTV supported Hungry Like the Wolf very, very soon after the song and the album came out. Yeah, they had 10 videos, so this was number 11. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There were record company executives that didn't believe in the power of videos to break records yet. There would be cities. Parts of the city had a cable company that carried MTV, and the other part of the city wouldn't have MTV yet. They did a study in Dallas they were able to divide the city into parts that had MTV and parts that didn't. And the record was selling like hotcakes in the neighborhood that had MTV and wasn't. And I just found that so fascinating. I mean, it, it, it really is like when you think about how, you know, we consume music now and encounter music now, you know, everybody can kind of get anything from anywhere. Yeah. But yeah, the fact that, the, you know, like, okay, well, we have MTV. And so we're going to go to our local neighborhood store in the mall or the record store and we're buying Rio here. But if you didn't have MTV, it was like a completely different world. The fact that it was that segmented. And you're right. You know, people forget MTV just kind of, it was rolled out. It was a very slow rollout. It was very much like a, you know, DIY word of mouth thing. You had to keep calling people and, you know, and it was very much like, you know, kind of a, when you think of like a snowball rolling downhill and gathering more snow as it kind of picked up speed, that's kind of how MTV's rollout was in America. Yeah. I have a very personal story about that. I mean, our little town in Elyria, Ohio had MTV, but the surrounding cities did not. And I went to 
our little Camelot music at the mall to, to buy Rio because I loved that song, uh, Hunger Like the Wolf, that was playing, and I couldn't find it. I would have to special order Aww. it. But then one day I got in the mail a copy of Rio. It was the album of the month from the Columbia Record and Tape Club. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> 80s way to discover one of the most 80s albums. Oh, yeah. And that's how I got my first copy. And strangely enough, it was the David Kirschbaum remix. Well, let's talk about right. those David Kirschbaum remixes. Annie, why was the album remixed? So, I mean, kind of as what we've been sort of talking about, the record wasn't taking off because it sounded, you know, the people thought it sounded too British. And this is another thing that, like, if you think about it now, you know, you listen to the record, you're like, yeah, you're familiar with the record, you know, but people just, it didn't fit in with where radio was with like the journeys and the rush and the Bob Seegers and all that stuff. So they basically said, okay, we need to kind of do a remix to kind of make it a little more rebalance it a little bit, add some things, make some tweaks here to basically kind of make it fit in a little better at radio. And so, you know, when, so he basically, you know, you listen to the remixes and like the guitars are a little higher in the mix. Simon's vocals are a little higher in the mix. The keyboards are a little bit more in the background. And, you know, it, it sounds very similar. You can tell the differences, but basically they were like, we need to try to, you know, make this uh, for lack of a better word, more American sounding and yes. try to make it fit in. Definitely musclier. Uh, I think yeah. the, the most radical change is hold back the rain, which becomes a, almost like a seven minute yeah. remix, a true remix, or almost dance mix, which is the superior mix, if you ask me. What do you <laughs> What do you prefer? Do you like the original mix or do you like the Kirschbaum stuff? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it depends on the song because you're right. There are so many different mixes of all the different songs. See, I I'm. It's funny because I was trying to remember. I'm like, what version did I grow up with? Because right. Rio on CD was different. They had some different mixes of the song they used until like the 2009 reissue. So I'm like, well, wait a second. I grew up on the mix from like 1995. So which one even was that? So I think that was the Kirschenbaum mix. And I, I, I don't, my tape player is not working because I was like, I need to hear, listen to this. Uh, yeah, right. I, I think I almost prefer the original, you know, and that's no shade to the Kirschenbaum mixes just because I think now the original is in heavier rotation. So it's what I'm used to. And so the Kirschenbaum's like, wow, this is really, it, it, it sounds different. It definitely sounds different to my ears. And so I think because I just grew up on it, but well, there's so many remixes and there's so many really good remixes from this record. It's almost hard to keep track of them. Did you talk to the band at all about their reaction to having it remixed? I did a little bit. I think basically everyone was just like, let's try it. You know, if it doesn't work, then it doesn't, but we don't use it. They were in the studio though. You know, Nick and Simon, especially were in the studio. Um, you'll appreciate this, John, that one of the things I found when researching was Cleveland Scene did an interview with Simon um, to preview a Cleveland show in 1982. And he happened to be in the studio, like taking a break from the studio with the remixes as he was doing the interview. Oh, wow. So you start it and he's talking about, you know, doing the remixes. Mm -hmm. So, but, so they were very, very hands-on with that too, though, you know, and as, as they were with all of their music. So that, that's kind of relief. It wasn't like some Capitol Records mandate that they had no, no. control over. Okay, that's good. Yeah, they were on board. Yeah. And at the same time, they made some like 12-inch dance mixes of these songs, didn't they? They did. And well, what's so interesting is that, so as you know, as people will, will tell you, there are a million different versions of Rio floating around out there. All of them are slightly different. You know, their Discogs page for this record is ridiculous. Um, but Carnival. <laughs> and so Carnival, basically, there were multiple versions of Carnival 
around the world, basically. And so that's basically what Capital also decided. It was like, okay, you know, Rio's not necessarily taking off. We're going to release this EP of dance remixes because people are really, you know, we, we could see Duran Duran being more a dance band. You know, it was picking up at MTV where the dance bands were a little bit more popular. So let's do this. But what's interesting is that the American version of the Carnival EP had Hold Back the Rain, and but they also had the night versions of Hungry Like the Wolf and Girls on Film, which were done by Colin Thurston. And so it was like this whole like, you know, kind of mishmash of eras and and people like that. So it was Hungry Like the Wolf, the night version, Girls on Film night version, and then Carnival remixes of Hold Back the Rain in my own way. So, you know, so it was basically, but Girls on Film, of course, was the first record. And so it was this whole like mishmash of things like that thing you always see on Twitter with the guy trying to do calculus. I think it's from, I can't remember, like it's from the office or something. That's how it's like trying to track down everything from the Rio era. You have to like sit there and like have, you know, a whiteboard with everything, trying to figure everything out. Yeah. Like the rock family tree. <laughs> Just yeah. Tendrils going everywhere. Magnifying glasses in the dead wax. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You talk about influences and how they got the sound they got to. One of the things they said were they were early on, before they even had the lineup solidified, Simon wasn't in the band. They said they wanted to aim for a cross between Sex Pistols and Chic. And with these extended dance mixes, that's something that Chic was really into and did that a lot. And then we were talking about John's bass playing. He was obviously a huge Bernard Edwards fan, really funky, really inventive bass playing. How much of an influence was Chic really? Was it just they liked the band or did they try to emulate things that Chic did in their music? I think it's it's a little bit of both. You know, I think that as, you know, they were so, you know, I mean, because Chic's whole, you know, one of their amazing strengths was they were a fantastic live band. It wasn't that they were just a studio outfit. You know, it was like, no, we're, we're going to go play live. And so part of it was, Duran Duran was like, we are going to practice. We are going to come, you know, John and Roger um, Taylor, drummer, basically we're like, we are going to practice and become like these rhythm sections we love. And so we are going to emulate Sheik's rhythm section by being really, really tight. And so that's part of it. And then I think, you know, because they were, you know, the rum runner and they were out at dance clubs and it was so exciting. There was also that excitement too, you know, they were, their music was going to be very danceable and there was some optimism and there was just that, you know, like with the sense of you heard the song and you just couldn't help but move. And so I think it's definitely a, a little bit of both. And they got to work with Nile Rogers later on too. They did. And I mean, and I saw it. Chic opened up for Duran Duran in 2016. Wow. Yeah. Which was, and of course he got to come out and play with them on stage. Yeah. It, was just, it was just, which was of course such a thrill. You know, they just, they just really, uh, they got along. They were such great collaborators. They just really, really you know, understood each other. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about Andy on Rio? I think it's really in the catalog, the only Duran Duran album where Andy gets uh, a little bit of a spotlight. You can actually hear the guitars. There are solos. 
I, you know, it's, it was so interesting going back and doing a deep listening to this record, you know, because obviously I've heard it, you know, so many times over the years and, you know, I was really doing deep listening for each individual musician and you're right, you know, his guitar, the way his guitars interact and intersect with all of the other musicians and the musical parts on the record is really stunning in many ways. You know, I think of like New Religion, which is one of my favorite songs on the record and his playing on on that. And you hear just like, you know, he's such a powerful guitar player. And so you hear that sometimes, but he also is dynamic, but he also knows how to interact, play in, in with, with, in the context of a band. And I think that's very, very difficult. So I mean, I think we all know, you know, flashy guitar players who, you know, they basically, any song they're on, you're like, oh yeah, there they are because they just can't help but being at the forefront if there's just something yeah. in them. But he, and, but he knows when, okay, this is appropriate, this is good. And like, well, I'm going to, you know, be adding texture here or doing this here. Like it's, it was really remarkable. And I, I think this came up from, in some of my band member interviews, just saying, no, the balance on this record, you know, everybody was just, was just really phenomenal. Everybody knew their place and everybody was just really in sync. And I think that absolutely stands out, but yeah, I mean, he is such an integral part of Duran Duran's early sound and this, this record in particular. I love in particular, there's a part in the book where you talk about when they are playing live and Andy came up with a solo to cover where the sax solo would have been in Rio. And that right. just, that makes your point that he really was listening and knew what to play where. So it really worked for the song. Absolutely. And that's where, that, that's, that was a really cool bootleg I found, I think from Detroit. So this was like, this was, I think in July of 82. And so this was like before Rio had really taken off in America and, you know, there's this like really just like high quality, I think soundboard bootleg. And you listen to this because I mean, that solo is just so, you know, iconic. And so to hear another instrument playing it at first, you're like, wow, that's really jarring. That's so interesting. You know, it was such an, an interesting take on how that song could be. You know, I mean, what if Duran Duran had decided in the studio to do that? You know, that maybe that would have changed their fortunes. Like it's, it was, it was very, very cool to hear and discover that. Oh yeah, I'm just stunned to find out there was a time when they couldn't afford to take Andy Hamilton on. Tour. <laughs> I know that was that Bootstrap U.S. tour. This is this yes. is the Blondie tour. So that was that where they were just like, I was like, you know, where, where's their record label support? I guess they they wouldn't pay for the uh, saxophone. Well, they, they, they were dumping suppose, hundreds of thousands of dollars into videos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suppose no it wasn't at the Pirates Cove, so. No. <laughs> it's so interesting because I think, you know, and this came up too, Rio came out like just before music got really, really electronic heavy. And so I think it was part of it almost that, you know, starting in mm. like 83, 84, you know, guitars were starting not not out of fashion exactly, but they were used in a much different way in music. Right. You know, I think everything. And so I think it was more like, you know, that type of player, you know, he grew up touring in the 70s. You know, he admired so many great guitar gods and and they that what they were doing went out of fashion. It was, you know, it was definitely not him. Right. It was more like, yeah. all right, 
you know, and you, and you heard different songs, you know, they would in live, especially, you know, Duran Duran was still this like killer rock band, you know, where he really had time to shine, but in the studio. And I think they, it was just kind of reflective of the times, honestly, more than anything. And I think in the, you see that more in hindsight too, when you kind of actually, cause like the distance between the band, you know, in the studio and then how they sounded live, you know, there was a pretty, it was, it was really interesting, you know, anyone who just heard their records were like, oh, they're just a pop band, but you heard them live and it was like, wow, they are a, you know, totally amazing, tight, you know, really on it band. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned too about how things changed and things started becoming more electronic after this record. That's a really great point. And I also found it interesting in there where Roger was talking about recording drums and the, the majority of Rio, he started out playing acoustic drums and they layered some electronic drums on top of it as a flavor. But later on, a couple of years down the road, man, it's drum machines and acoustic drums are gone in a lot of records. That is completely true. And I think, you know, and he mentioned that, you know, one of the more, you know, why Rio sounds so unique is that was kind of the acoustic and electronic combination. And that's another thing when, you know, if you, when you finally, when you do a deep listen to the record, you're like, that's, that's right. Of course, like that's why and it's such a balanced record. And then when you actually put on headphones and listen, you're like, oh, there's that little elements, but it's true. You know, you think of all of their, you know, like starting in late 1983 into 84, like it was so Bands were just so like, we need to have the newest, you know, equipment. We need to have the newest electronic equipment. Everything needs to be, you know, computers are so exciting. You know, everybody was really embracing that new technology. And it, it became a little less, a little less organic and a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, more, it sounded cool in a lot of ways, but it was yeah. definitely different than it had been even just, you know, one or two years before that. Yeah. A little more programmed. A little more, a little more regimented. It's harder to get into a groove, into a deep groove in the way Duran Duran did. If you have, you know, a drum machine, that's like unrelenting and, and very much like, you know, keeping time and keeping you in line. So I think that really is a, you know, a big reason too, why 80s music evolved and started sounding the way it did as well. What do you think is the sleeper on Rio? The sleeper. I mean, I, I mentioned new religion just because I think that was the song that in all of my listening, you know, and that's been in their, like, you know, I've seen it live. That's been in their set list all through to up to through 2019. But I just think the way that that song, all the, the performances and their influences and just everything about it just really combines in ways that I had never really pondered as deeply as I did before this book. And, and I just think that that, that song is just brilliant. You know, I think that's the one Simon was, you know, fascinated with early hip hop. And so he was kind of doing his little, you know, experimenting a little bit in that sense, but you have the Nick Rhodes really cool, you know, keyboard parts that are just kind of like floating and droning. And then you have, you know, Andy's little parts coming in and then underpinning it all is John and Roger. I mean, it's just, it's a really, really intriguing song. And uh, so I think that that's my sleeper song. One of those rare tracks where it's a early or early white guy rapping that is just not totally embarrassing and cringe inducing. 
Exactly. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and if he can, if he can still admit this was my influence to everyone be like, okay, we get it because, you know, he had that, he had that theater background. You know, I think the big secret about, you know, why, why Simon worked and we were watching some of the videos last, some of Duran Duran's videos last night. And we were kind of commenting on that because he had been on stage as a kid and really had, you know, he had that, he had the ability to kind of perform. He, he knew when to kind of go for it and kind of dial it back and also what worked for the song. And in that sense, you're right. I mean, he could have just, you know, it, it could have gone in very bad ways and it didn't yeah. <laughs> put it that way. Well, let's talk about the videos because I think it's really hard to separate this album from the videos. They're so, uh, yeah, I think about this album and the first thing that popped into my head is Simon on the front of this sailboat, just cruising. It's, what was it about their videos? And, that, and and man, for a band that was young like that, this is their second album. The record company was dumping an awful lot of money into the videos. They were. That is that is completely true. And, you know, I think, I mean, because so, you know, Duran Duran was massively popular in the UK and Australia on their first record. You know, so there was definitely a groundswell of support. And, you know, there was a there was enough happening in America. You know, their songs were doing, you know, had made some inroads in the dance clubs that the, the label was like, you know, OK, we're Rio's coming. We're going to give it a chance. We're going to support it, which wouldn't necessarily happen today, you know, in, in the music industry with how things are. So they did. They said we are committed that we are going to spend the money to make these videos. What they were just, you know, they were so different than anything else going on. You know, the UK always had a culture of music videos that were interesting and kind of groundbreaking and artistic, you know, in America, you know, you had people like Talking Heads and Devo and Blondie doing that stuff, but the vast majority of rock bands were not doing that. You know, I mean, we can all like laugh now, but it's like the, Hey, we're going to go on stage and just do a performance video, you know, and let's just play our songs. And there was no acting. It was basically just a live thing. Duran Duran instead said, we are going to go to Sri Lanka. And then when we're on vacation in Antigua, we're going to film a video while we're there and, you know, make these like basically mini movies. Great and tech right you, off. Yeah, well, let me tell exactly. You. <laughs> because there was nothing and but there was nothing like that. And it's, you know, and, and it's been said so many times and I found some early MTV vid checks where like, you know, it was like after, you know, the Who were on and that it was Duran Duran. I even say this in the book. It's like when TV went from black and white to color, it was just incredible how different it was because they were acting. You know, musicians weren't acting, you know, they were, you know, they were, they could be super awkward on stage. You know, it was very much like, you know, well, I'm singing this in a song and I'm going to act out what the lyrics are exactly. And, you know, I'm saying I'm walking around, hey, I'm going to walk around in a video, which was, you know, like, but Duran Duran, you know, took it a next step and said, okay, we have the song. We're going to build this universe around it. The song's going to be the soundtrack to the video. And that was incredibly groundbreaking. I think they also spent the money wisely if I'm not mistaken, because yes. they didn't just do two or three videos when they were in Sri Lanka. They did. It was, so they did Lonely in Your Nightmare, Save a Prayer and Hungry Like the Wolf in Sri Lanka. And I believe, and so then in Antigua, they did Rio. And then they had the stuff from the first record as well, which I think there were a couple of them that were done in, I believe in London. And then um, the chauffeur was also done in London. And so it was like, but yeah, you're right. They were like, okay, we're going to be there for a week. We're going to get, you know, we're going to do three videos. I think they also did Night Boat in Antigua, if I'm not mistaken. And so that's also on the video album, which was like this cool zombie movie, like outtake thing. (laughs) Lots of of acting in that one. Yes. 
but you're right. You know, they were very smart about it. It wasn't like, well, we're going to make three separate trips places and film three separate videos, you know, and they, they were very, very economical about that. Well, that's really such a genius idea too, to make a video album, because, you know, we think it's so easy to watch a video these days. We have so many different ways to watch a video quickly, immediately. But back then, VCRs weren't even in every house. And so all of a sudden, though, they, the price on VCRs came down. More people had them. I think you quote in the book, it's one in seven households had a VCR by that point. And so they said, hey, we've got an outlet here to sell VHS copies of our videos. Absolutely. Duran Duran's label EMI, that was one of their endeavors. They saw very early on, they were they were bought by Thorne, which at the time made VCRs and said, hey, we need some product here. And so they <laughs> yeah. planned for all, which was, you know, which in hindsight was brilliant, you know, so they had like Kate Bush and Iron Maiden and, you know, putting out these things, but Duran Duran, they again, took it up a notch. You know, they not only had their videos that they filmed, they, you know, sequenced it in such a way. It was like a mega mix. They put things kind of together. They didn't just do things sequentially. They mixed up the eras. It was extremely watchable. You know, it was like, a, like a mega mix album, you know, that now that you would, you know, that, that's very common, but it was a very, very inventive way of, of doing that as well. And they won a Grammy for it. Their only Grammys were from that era. <laughs> music videos, which like you, 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 you know that on any, but when you actually like say that out loud, you're like, are you kidding me? I know, yeah, isn't that funny. Come on, Grammys, really? <laughs> <laughs> Video album, you know, for someone that couldn't afford a VCR, or I think the retail on that thing when it came out was something crazy, like forty nine ninety five oh, yeah. or something like that. There was a somewhat of a joy of staying up late and seeing it on Showtime or Cinemax after dark because of the chauffeur. Uh, so they got, they had another revenue stream that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I, I, I didn't calculate what like 49.95 would be in, you know, modern money, but that's a lot of money. To a 13 year old kid. Well, for a that, kid, come on. That's still, a lot of it's still a lot of money. Yeah. And That's why you just take it out of the library. You just keep it yep. and then you just keep exactly. renewing it for weeks on end. Or just don't bring it back and get in trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned they're like little movies. The Chauffeur, John, you just mentioned that. It was really more of a movie than a video. It was shot on 35 millimeter film. The director of that video, Ian Eames, this is a really amazing kind of animator and director. He worked a lot with Pink Floyd in the 70s. And yeah, they he like, you know, basically um, Russell Mulcahy, who had done a lot of the videos, basically called him up and said, hey, we need this video. He made this treatment and basically filmed this beautiful black and white film, you know, with these women. And it was very mysterious and it was all very artistic. I mean, it's very, very Duran Duran. Like when you, when you look at it now, it's amazing that the band wasn't in the video because you're like, this is like quintessential, like artistic, you know, now I mean, Duran Duran have made videos that have, you know, referenced it and they still play it live. I mean, it's just so them, but it's beautiful. Like it is really a beautiful piece of art. It's very, very different though than their other videos, but that really just shows their range and how they were, you know, at that point, they were kind of like, sure, this sounds good. Let's try this. Let's see if it works. When the sun drips down, You have Perry Lister as one of the uh, dancers, the chauffeur herself. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, sadly known mostly as Billy Idol's girlfriend, which I think is really diminishing a lot yeah. of the things 
he actually accomplished in the early 80s. 100%. Absolutely. I completely agree. Back to the Rio video, though. <laughs> I love the story, and I had never heard this before. The story of the German tourist. <laughs> when they were filming it, he had a Super 8 camera. And so they asked if they could borrow his Super 8 camera, and they filmed a shot of them mimicking the sax solo, took it back to EMI, did the transfer, and then mailed the tourist his Super 8 cassette back. Thank you. Yeah, isn't that great? That was that was one of my favorite things. You know, Russell is such a genius. You know, is, went on, you know, working with Duran Duran. And, you know, he worked with a lot with Elton John early on. He directed the wonderful Christmas time video for Paul McCartney. He basically was like a springboard, but he was such a visionary in terms of music videos. Who would think of that? You know, it's like, oh, we forgot the shot. You know, maybe you would have said, oh, well, we're just not going to do it. He was like, let's have a plan C. Let's borrow a camera from this tourist who probably was like, sure, whatever. You know, I don't know who this band is. All right. And let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Totally great. You know, he, but, you know, and he, he mentioned that he's like, there are all these things we tried and maybe something happened like the tide went out. And we couldn't do it. But so you have a plan B and you have a plan C and you just kind of think on your feet. And I think that was, you know, that, that really, you know, speaks a lot because Duran Duran are like that. You know, when you talk about like the sex pistols, it's very much like DIY, we're going to do it ourselves and yeah. you kind of figure it out. They really related to each other, I think, in, in that way too. Didn't they suffered for their art, their video art? They suffered. Didn't they did. someone they did. Didn't get dysentery from swallowing river water in Sri Lanka? That was that was Andy in Andy. Uh, Sri Lanka. Yes, he he fell off. I believe he was on like uh, oh, a, an elephant, a <laughs> or it was either a tree branch or an elephant. I think it was a One tree branch. Fell in the water, and like he details this in his memoir. And yeah, like he got sick. They had to cancel tour dates. Like it was wow. like he was in the hospital for a few days, I believe. Like it was not, it was not good. Like it was just, yeah, this is one of those things where you're, you know, in hindsight, you're like, you're lucky that he's still alive. Yeah, no kidding. That, you know, that's serious, yeah. serious stuff. You think if anybody was going to get sick from the water, it would have been Simon from the little boy in the, in the Hunger yeah. Like the Wolf video, wringing out the uh, cloth into his mouth. I know. Like, oh, it's, I, I mean... It seems like in such a short time, they had new music out when Rio still had such a shelf life left. But before you know it, all of a sudden they had a single out, Something I Should Know. And this song, though, I mean, did it? Did they write it after they finished doing the album? Because this song would have fit on the album perfectly, I think. That's a really good question. I, you know, I actually don't know when that song came together. I was so focused on talking about Rio, I actually didn't ask about the song. I should have done that in hindsight, but let me think. So that came out, I believe in spring of 83, it went right to number one in the UK. I think that must've come together in probably, I would think late 82. Well, you know what? They had a, they had a touring break in kind of later 82. So if I had to guess, I would have to, it came together then. I've always thought of that song, this really cool bridge between Rio and everything that came next, because yeah. it's like, so Beatles influenced, and it's like, it's so super poppy and it just really, you know, kind of like pops out of the speakers. But that's actually probably one of my like top five Duran Duran songs. Please, please tell me now, is there something I should know? Is there something I should say that'll make you come back? I'm 
I'm going completely by memory here, but I think it was produced by Ian Little, which would tell me that they were recording Seven and the Ragged Tiger at that time. And in the U.S., Rio, of course, had a late beginning compared to the rest of the world in terms Mm. of success. And so they wanted to re-release the first album and capitalize on that. And they tacked it on to the first album in the U.S. with that new track. Is there something I should know? Which is a shame because it completely derailed Rio having a third single in the U.S. Like Save a Prayer, maybe? We never got that until Arena, and we got a live version as a single of Safer Prayer. So it, w- it was kind of a shame. It was a cool song, but, you know, stopped Rio's momentum. Oh, I just, it seems like there was so much more runway left for Rio when they, but they pushed out new music. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the weirdest things about when you, if you compare like Duran Duran's career trajectory in the UK and the US, in the UK, it's a lot more traditional. Like, yeah, Rio had the chance to have their three singles they all became hits. You know, the band was, you know, so it made sense. Hey, let's have a stopgap single in, in the spring. So, you know, everyone would be, you know, like, uh, you know, ready for the seven and the rag, seven and the ragged tiger at the end of 1983. But in America, everything took so long to take off. It was like cramming two, you know, two album cycles into one because you're right. Is there something I should know was tacked onto the debut? They had, a, they put a new you know, modern picture of the band on the cover and they redid the track list a little bit. And then Girls on Film like became popular again. You know, MTV was playing all that stuff. So again, it was like two of the albums were together at, at the same time. And so it was all messed up. And you're right. It, it's it's crazy when you think about Save a Prayer wasn't a single until 1985. Like that's like the power station was already like starting to become something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you have that Mandela effect in the U.S. where people are yeah. like, oh, Save a Prayer was a huge hit. And no, they played the video yep. a lot, but it wasn't a single here until nope. years after. Totally. Yeah. This album is such an iconic album of the 80s. But one element that we have not discussed yet, which we absolutely must discuss, is the cover. Yes. Yeah. Come on. This was this was a Patrick Nagel painting and and Patrick Nagel it's you know very he's very iconic early 80s artist you know he did he was known for doing work for Playboy like illustrations but he just made these like I don't even know how you would describe it, these beautiful women and but it was very artistic and just very graceful but mysterious you know when you think of like 80s art like he really sort of kind of embodied but also kind of really you know foreshadowed what was basically going to happen and he, he passed away at a very very young age I believe it was 1984 but basically you know I think one of Duran Duran's managers saw his art and you know was and they decided, you know, this is really good. Let's commission him to do something for Rio. And they did. And they came up with, you know, he had two options. And one of them was their like smiling, you know, Rio woman. And so they basically had this beautiful piece of art. And then they gave it to Malcolm Garrett, who did a, a ton of their graphic design in, in the first part of their career. And he put all these little details on it, you know, and kind of put his own spin on it and, you know, and added little things like one of my favorite parts of the book was he talked about, he thought of it as Rio is almost like a cigar box. So there's all these little details, celebratory, you know, we're on a beach, but that's what this is. And so, but you look at this and it, it truly is like a piece of art in, in a way that eighties albums just aren't. And just so universally accessible to fans too, because I think every 
early 80s teenager that had art class recreated that cover as one of their assignments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it still is. It's unbelievable how people have still used that for fan art for not even just Duran Duran, you know, and last year people put a mask over it, you know, for, you know, for like coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, right. I've seen gem and the holograms mashups. That's probably my favorite mashup is someone did a gem and the holograms mashup with that. And it matches what's inside. It's, it's yes. really truth in advertising. You know, what's on the wrapper is actually what's inside. Malcolm, you know, Garrett, like he hadn't heard the music either. You know, he hadn't heard the song when he did that. And so for whatever reason, there was just kind of that magic in in the artwork that, you know, you could just kind of sense something was going on. It's really incredible how all that aligned. Mm -hmm. What influence would you say Duran Duran and this album in particular, Rio, had on music moving forward in the 80s? God, where do you even begin? The record in Duran Duran, I mean, they they really, I mean, they set the bar incredibly high for how bands needed to operate. It wasn't good enough anymore just to say, all right, we're putting out a record and maybe we'll just, you know, stand in a soundstage and record a video, you know, like that, that was no longer good enough. If you really wanted to make it big, if you really wanted to become a success, you had to think, be very deliberate and be very thoughtful about how you were projecting your visual elements, whether that's, you know, your album artwork or your videos or the clothes you wore, your stage wear, your stage, you know, setup even. And so they really set the bar high and really kind of served as kind of a blueprint and a model for 80s, you know, music and bands going forward. And I, I, in doing research, it was really, really like when I actually like sat down and like wrote a list of here's all the musicians who have said they love Duran Duran and Rio. It was mind blowing. It was just astounding. People you would think, people you wouldn't suspect. They had such a influence on grunge bands, on new metal, on Britpop, on electronic music. Courtney Love did that, you know, that version of Hungry Like the Wolf on Unplugged that was so famous, you know, and I think she covered it again live too. You know, she loved Duran Duran. But, you know, they were just one of those bands that like in Lincoln Park, they said, you know, one of the members was like, yeah, we wanted to be in Duran Duran. You would never suspect this stuff. It's just it just really it seeped into the consciousness in really kind of unique ways that I think a lot of people, you know, wouldn't necessarily suspect. You do have some of the usual suspects, too. Like there would not be a killer's without Duran Duran. Right. Exactly. Right. exactly. And like the killer's. I think in the, you know, the 2000s, you know, did a lot to also kind of raise Duran Duran's profile because Brandon Flowers talked them up so much. They are probably one of the closest modern rock bands to really kind of capturing the Duran Duran style and aesthetic and what they were kind of going for. I mean, you listen to uh, the opening track of Hot Bus. Jenny was a friend of mine. He's like, that's a Duran Duran song. Stop. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And in hindsight, I'm like, well, that's why I like that record so yeah. much. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, I love that record. And it's more than the music too. It's the vibe. It's yeah. like, you just get this, like, man, I'm having a good time listening to this music. So I think it's that, that kind of feeling that it projects. I think that stuck with artists too. It was very positive and very optimistic and aspirational. You know, it was very much like you listen to this record and you feel like you could be anything and do anything. You know, like if you went out, if you're going out for a night, who knows what might happen? You know, their possibilities are endless. You know, there, there's a lot of, you know, even if something, you know, you, there's some moodier moments on the record, you know, there's, it's also very romantic. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of feeling packed into that. And and you're right, you know, there's very much like, 
you know, I think and, and that came up in my interviews, you know, and that the band wasn't necessarily trying to go for that. That's just how they were at the time. You know, they were this young band. They had a really exciting 1981 and then they're releasing the second record and there's, you know, lots of high hopes. You know, that's that's definitely true to who they were at the time. What is it about second records? By the way, <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. I mean, Chicago's second record they don't sound like Chicago until their second record. Black Crows didn't sound like Black Crows until their second nope. record. I mean, basically, uh, it, it's I think the band had learned how to kind of you know be a band. Basically, you know, I mean, Duran Duran. I mean, this this Rio came out less than two years after they became a band. You know, they released their first record. That's you amazing. Know, it is amazing. You know, it's totally when you actually, you know, and, and when you look at the dates, you're like, oh, yeah, sure. But when you actually, again, say that out loud, you're like, are you kidding me? It's mind blowing because they knew how, you know, they had spent so much time touring together. They had really gotten to know each other as musicians. They had gotten to know each other's strengths. They had gotten to know, all right, here's where we intersect on songwriting. We all have different influences, but here's where we're going to kind of bring them in and kind of really, you know, and, and put them together in interesting ways. You know, if this is a puzzle, how does everything fit together? And so I think, you know, the first record and the first round of touring was them really kind of figuring out what worked. And then by the time Rio hit, they were like, all right, we're just going to do it. We're going to go for it. We're confident. And we're just going to kind of go from there. But you're right. It doesn't necessarily always work like that. You know, you, when you talk about the sophomore slump, very real, people get intimidated or people, you know, start overthinking things. And, but Duran Duran just did not have that. They just really, they knew what they were doing and they were like, we're going to do it. I think they had the sophomore slump and they got, they got it out of their system with my own way as a single which exactly. was the first album and the second album and did not do too well and got completely reimagined and re-recorded for Rio. And I, I mentioned that because I'm here to give my own way its props. <laughs> it gets a lot of stick, but the, the Rio version is really good. version on Rio, they nailed it. They, it was, they were completely right to say, yeah, I think we need to kind of reimagine this and let's think about this in a modern way, you know, because the original, my own way sounds like a disco song. It sounds like it's from the late seventies, but the one, the version on Rio is definitely very futuristic and very forward thinking. Yeah. By then they really knew who they were. Justice for my own way. <laughs> it's a great song. I love that song. That's how can you not crank that song up when you hear it? Annie, have you ever heard the theory that Rio represents a night out? It starts off with Rio, uh, my own way. You're getting ready. You're getting your, your makeup on. You're getting dressed. You're going out. It, hold back the rain. You're there. Then it kind of goes into uh, lonely in your nightmare and the, and the night's kind of winding down. And then you get to the chauffeur when you're heading home. I've read this fan theory. I don't think there's a lot to it, but it's interesting. I can see it, you know, and because I think there's different elements where like different songs, 
you know, I think like last chance on the stairway was written to be sort of like we're at a party, you know, and it's like things are just not going well. It's one of those parties you go to where you're like, oh, my night is not going well. And so I can see little elements of that. And I think, you know, my own way definitely has to like shout out to the dance club. But I, you know, I think it's more travelogue. I think it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's bigger than that. I think it's not just a night out. It's sort of a global you know, them looking globally at our, their last year and saying, you know, this is the world was sort of their, you know, exciting night out. You know, they were looking so much broader because they were they were so just like blown away by everything they were experiencing because they were kids. They were absolute. They were young kids. I mean, Nick Rhodes was 19 when they made Rio. I mean, that's yeah. like when, when right. I think back when I was 19, I didn't know anything. The fact that like I could not have made a record, I could not have made any sort of record, much less a classic record at that age. So it's, it's ridiculous. A lot of musicians are just learning how to play at that age, but those guys produced a record that sounds like they'd been doing it for 20 years. Exactly. Uh, I mean, and that's, you know, and I think a lot of people forget that because, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, the, the pose of Simon on, on the yacht and they're sailing and they look, you know, amazing. I mean, they look like these, you know, grown ups who are just like having, you know, enjoying the fruits of, you know, their, you know, success. And they were, they were not on having global success yet. Like they were sort of, you know, tele, you know, projecting that basically, but they were kids. They were complete. Like they were like, this is really exciting. This is something new that we're doing. This is very cool. You know, they were experiencing a lot of things for the first time. I mean, think a lot like their fans, you know, who were kind of growing up and just really, you know, figuring out who they were as people, you know, I think that's, and I I know I mentioned this in the book, but I think that's one of the secrets of this record is that there's a lot of self-discovery on on the fans and band part. And so they, everyone kind of sensed that in each other. And I think that's why the album resonates so much. Annie, thank you so much for your time today. What a great discussion. This was great. Thank you so much. I can talk about Duran Duran for hours. And so I am, thank you so much for giving me the chance. In case anybody doesn't know in 2021, how can people buy your book? You can buy it from the uh, publisher Bloomsbury, um, bloomsbury.com. You can search my name on there. Amazon has it. You can get it from your local independent bookstore as well. I know that they are stocking it. And um, some certain record stores too also stock it, you know, so if you just call around, it's like, you know, I want my MTV, you can call up and say, I want my Duran Duran book and, and tell people they can order it for you. Awesome. Annie Zaleski, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much to Annie Zaleski for spending some time with us. You can connect with her at AnnieZ.com. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.